Good morning, everyone. I know you're all wondering about the cameras, and uh, I didn't want to tell you this before today, but I'm actually running for president. And so, <laughs> so <laughs> no. <laughs> Thank God, canon law, the, church, the law of the church actually forbids priests from running for any kind of political office. Thank God. Um, now they're here today. We're going to have a video on our website. Uh, and so, uh, just a normal Mass. We're here to pray and to worship God. So, as a priest, sometimes I'm one of the things that we do, and all Catholics, what we should do, we all have kind of our favorite saints. And it's a great thing for us to know the feast day of our favorite saints. It's, it's kind of almost like a, a birthday or something. Um, there are ways to mark time and seasons and all these things. Well, one of my favorite saints is St. Saint John Paul II. Um, but as you all know, I'm kind of a chump, and I didn't even realize that yesterday was his feast day. And I didn't know until I went out to lunch with uh, Father Brady, who was here last weekend. We went out to lunch yesterday, and and he said, hey, Larkin, happy feast day. And I was like, thanks. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> but I had no idea it was JP2. Uh, and I want to talk today a little bit about John Paul II. I don't know if he had as large of an impact on your life as he had on mine. Uh, sometimes they say saints choose you. John Paul II is one of the reasons I'm a priest. He and Archbishop Chaphew in my mind, were always the two men when I thought, what is, what is a priest? Those two are it for me. Um, growing up in the faith, and I'm probably the only one, but growing up Catholic, I think some of us at least, have a tendency to think that Catholicism is something that's kind of bland and humdrum and sometimes can actually be uh, depressing. And what I loved about John Paul was that he destroyed that image, as all the saints do. But he just destroyed it. I, you, you've never seen a more happy, joyful person than John Paul II. Uh, we're told that actually, of any human being in history, no one was seen in person by more humans than John Paul the Great. He had this inexhaustible energy. He was an actor as, as, a young, um, as a young man, and he just was charismatic. He was a gifted intellectual. He was a gifted speaker. He's one of those people who really makes you mad because he's like good at everything. Right? I hate those people. Um, but if you remember, in 2005 was when John Paul II died. And... Uh, for me, that was a big deal because I had never known another pope. He was elected pope in 1978. I was born in 1980. If you're doing your math, I'm 36. That's right. And uh, he, as he approached his final days, John Paul lost everything that made him him. Right? He was so charismatic. He was so full of energy. He was such a powerful presence. And as he neared the end of his life, all of that went away. And it was something hard, but at the same time beautiful, 
to see him at St. Peter's Basilica in a wheelchair when he could no longer walk. And as the end of his time drew near, he died in April, and he, uh, in March, there was a large gathering outside of St. Peter's Basilica. And every year the Pope does what's called the Ubi et Orbi Address, which means to the city and to the world. And it's an Easter address where the Pope addresses the whole world. And John Paul had lost his voice. He had a throat infection. He couldn't speak. <clears throat> and he was very disheartened by this. And so he spent weeks practicing trying to get ready because he wanted to be able to speak at this address. And there's this very dramatic moment. He couldn't go down to the square, but he was in the papal apartments at his window, and they brought a microphone to his bedside. And he had prayed and worked and hoped for this moment, and they put the microphone to his face, and he couldn't speak. Nothing. His great hope of speaking to the world one last time failed. Archbishop Jeevish, who was his secretary, recalls that moment. And this is a great book. It's called The End and the Beginning. And it tells the story about a lot of things that happened at the beginning of John Paul's pontificate and at the end. But Archbishop Jeevish says this. He says, The Pope was deeply shaken and saddened. He also seemed exhausted by his unsuccessful attempt to speak. The people in the square were full of emotion. They were plotting him and calling out his name. But he felt the weight of the powerlessness and suffering he had displayed. He looked into my eyes and said, maybe it would be better for me to die if I can't fulfill the mission that has been entrusted to me. Before I could answer, he said, Thy will be done, totus tuus. I love that story. John Paul, as what will happen to many of us at the end of our lives, he lost all the things that kind of made him him. And he had that doubt. Did you hear that? He said, if I can't even bless my people, what good am I? But he was also a saint. And so John Paul, feeling his own worthlessness, turned that to Christ. Just like Jesus did in the garden, right? Thy will be done. The reason I bring all this up, the Archbishop has asked all the priests, priests of the diocese to preach for three weekends on Proposition 106. If you don't know what Proposition 106 is, you haven't been going to church, and I'll see you in the confessional. Um, Proposition 106 is a measure in our state that is about physician-assisted suicide. And it's a big problem. And that's what I want to talk about today. So John Paul, the, the great thing about this story that I just told you, you and I, what happens in the world is that there, we let our abilities to do things speak to our dignity. We all do this. If I, give some, if I think I give a good homily on Sunday, I feel like a million bucks. 
If I give a homily that's not so good, I feel like my dignity is somehow less. What good am I to others? We all feel that way, right? When, when you fail at something, you and I oftentimes let that speak to our identity. And the world tells us that all the time. But brothers and sisters, it's a lie. At the end of people's lives, oftentimes, they lose their ability to do things. But guess what? You are not valuable because you do things. You are not valuable because you look good or because you have a charming personality or because you've been successful at work. You have dignity because you belong to God. And our world desperately needs that message. So desperately. There are some people in our culture right now who think they can decide when a life has dignity and is valuable and when it is not. That is so dangerous. Who's next? If we decide that people who are near the end of their life are somehow less valuable, are we going to start deciding if dis- people with disabilities have somehow less valuable lives than others? It's an extremely dangerous thing to think that you and I can put a value on a human life. To be a Christian is to understand that life in its joys and its sorrows and its difficulties is a gift from God. And you and I aren't God, we're creatures. It's so important that we understand that. So that's the first point this morning, is that when we fail, when we can't do things, that does not affect our dignity. It doesn't make us any less valuable. Jesus tells us in the gospel that one human soul is worth more than the entire world. One soul. You and I stand for life. To be pro-life is to be against abortion. It is to be against physician-assisted suicide. It is to understand that every human being is created in the image and likeness of God and that it is always, always wrong to kill innocent human life, whether that is your own or someone else's. Always wrong. But here's the greater message I want you to pray about today and this week. You and I, you know in the Gospels, in in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7, I know you all know that, Jesus tells us, he says to Christians, you are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Do you remember what salt does? You're like, yeah, I put it on everything I eat. It's amazing. (laughs) It does make things taste better. You know what else salt does is it preserves things. We're not as in tune with that because we have refrigeration and other preservatives in the modern world. But in the ancient world, one of the absolute primary purposes of salt was to preserve things. Christians preserve society. When you lose sight of God, when people lose sight of God and when they think about life apart from God, they start doing unreasonable things. 
And one of the first things they always do is they start to degrade humanity. Because if human beings aren't made in the image and likeness of God, they become expendable. And their value can be assessed based on what they can do for us. Christians are the salt of the earth. It is our duty, right? This time of history belongs to us. God has entrusted it to us as Christians. We are his hands and his feet. We are the salt of the earth. We preserve society. When people in our culture want to degrade human life, you and I stand up against that. And we preserve the world. Here's a second point. The biggest thing the modern world right now doesn't know how to do is it doesn't know how to deal with suffering. And a lot of us don't either. Why is there suffering? None of us desire suffering. We avoid it at all costs. I'm the same way, right? You've heard me say it before. If I stub my toe, I'm like, why God? I'm your priest. How could you do this? None of us understands suffering. None of us knows quite how to deal with it. But if you are a Christian, you think about suffering differently than other people. Because you know that the suffering of Jesus Christ saved the world. The greatest evil in life, brothers and sisters, is not suffering. You're going to suffer. Some of us more, some of us less. We will all suffer. We will suffer physically. We will suffer psychologically, emotionally. That is a human issue. It happens to all of us. But that's not the greatest evil. The great evil in the world is when there is a lack of meaning and a lack of love. People don't commit a suicide because they suffer. They do it because they don't believe they're loved and that their suffering has a purpose. Yes, it does. (laughs) Suffering can transform us. It can unite us to God. It can make us better people. It can open our hearts in a way that sometimes they're so closed. Brothers and sisters, you and I are the guardians of that truth. We are people who hold out hope to a world often in despair. Next week, I want to talk with you a little bit about some of the practicals. Why is this not just a Christian issue? Why is this an issue that any human being with goodwill and with proper thinking can see this? We'll talk about some of that next week. But this week, you are a Christian. You belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ teaches us that suffering can bring redemption. And what we have to do with people at the end of their lives, that's what we all want. When I die, when my day comes... Who knows if it'll be tomorrow or if it'll be in 50 years? Who knows? No one. When I die, of course I don't want to suffer. 
But much more than that, you know what I want? I want people around me who love me. I want to confess my sins. I want to be in union with God. And more than anything, I want my suffering to be united to his. Jesus, this morning, give us courage to be real Christians, to be the salt of the earth. Lord, deliver us from fear. Deliver our nation from empty fear. Lord, help us to live for the things that matter, not money, not power. Jesus, help us to live for truth, for goodness and beauty, and to live, to learn what it means to love others. Bless us this morning and give us the courage to change our culture.